This episode includes a story about sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Two men walked into a bar on an August summer night in Minneapolis. It was 1988. The bar was on West Broadway. In that same neighborhood, eight days earlier, a white woman had been raped. She had told police it was two black men, but didn't have much of a description. She was at the bar that night, too, and when she saw George Lewis and Lavelle Carter, she pointed them out to a police officer. She told police she scratched the face of one of the men. Lavelle Carter had a scratch on his face. He and George were black. The criminal complaint says they were apprehended on the spot. We were trying to figure out why he was in jail. And they were telling us that he was picked up for rape. That's Johnny Mae Lewis, George's sister. She got a call saying George had been arrested with Lavelle, his fiancé's brother. George was 28 at the time and had just moved to Minneapolis from Mississippi a few months ago. Johnny May went to Minnesota and tried to talk to the police, but didn't know the procedures or any of the ins and outs of the criminal justice system there. She and George's fiancé, Geraldine, could only talk to him on the phone. He kept telling us he didn't do it, he didn't do it. No, I just was just uh, looking at it on a spiritual thing, saying, well, if it's God's will, you know, the truth will come out, you know. That's George's brother, Fritz. He says George had gotten into some trouble in Mississippi, stealing stuff with a group of other guys. But nothing like this. He was coming to Minnesota, like I hear many people say that they do, looking for a better life. George went to trial, and the woman identified him in the courtroom. She said she was sure he and Lavelle had raped her. Throughout the trial, the woman talked about George and Lavelle together as a pair. It was a horrible story. She said the two men pulled her into a car when she was walking home in North Minneapolis that night, and they took turns assaulting her, driving around for hours. The jury found George guilty on November 1st, 1988. A month later, Lavelle went to trial. This time, the woman was in the courtroom again. The attorneys were getting ready to give opening statements, and she broke down crying. She recanted, saying, I don't recognize this guy. I don't know if he's the one. The prosecutor made a motion to dismiss the charges right there, and the judge granted it. Laval was free. George heard about what happened from prison. He called his family and said, Laval's getting out. George's family thought this meant the whole ordeal was over. How could it not be? They were identified as a pair, arrested as a pair, charged as a pair. Shouldn't they be released as a pair? I'm Emily Havik, and this is Record of Wrong, a podcast about what it takes to prove you're innocent after you've been found guilty, and what kind of damage is left behind when someone is wrongfully convicted. When Lavelle Carter was let go, George's family thought he would be next. And we're like, okay, okay, that's that's good. You know, she can't, couldn't identify Lavelle. And they both were together, you know. George should be able to come home. But no, that didn't work like that. It didn't work like that. Because George had already been convicted, he was in a totally different situation. George's attorney filed a motion for a new trial based on new evidence. There was a hearing with the judge about a month after George's conviction. At that hearing, George's attorney said, look, the victim who identified George and Lavelle together as a pair has now taken back her identification of Lavelle. 
We should have a new trial, including this new evidence, and let a jury decide. The prosecutor was Patrice Eddy. She prosecuted both George and Lavelle, and she's the one who agreed to drop the charges against Lavelle. But at this hearing, instead of doing the same for George, she doubled down. She said she dismissed Lavelle's case because she was no longer able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Certainly a mistake was made, she said. But did the victim make that mistake when she identified the men in the bar? Or did she make it in the courtroom when she recanted? We probably will never know, Patrice said. She argued that George should stay in prison and not get a new trial. And the judge agreed. See, the judge had to rule not only on whether there was new evidence, but also whether it was likely that it would have caused a different result at George's trial. The judge said he was unable at this time to rule that it would because of, quote, all the evidence that was offered and all of the testimony that was offered. Remember that statement because it becomes really important as other courts back up this judge's decision. This idea that even if the victim recanted, it wouldn't have made a difference because of all the other evidence. But the thing is, there wasn't really any other evidence. And the prosecutor wasn't done with George. At that hearing, she said not only should George stay in prison, but because of the severity of the crime, his sentence should be doubled. The judge approved the upward departure. Instead of six years, he was sentenced to 12. George appealed that decision, and he was denied. But not just denied. When the appeals court looked at what happened with the victim and her recantation, they said, if anything, maybe her recantation might enhance the prosecution's case by suggesting that she, quote, is careful and will not identify anyone unless she is sure of their identification. That reasoning kept getting repeated by other courts, too. Because during the appeals process, judges try to go in with the mindset that they probably got it right in the previous court. In the law, at the appellate stage, the benefit of doubt is always going to go to the lower court. You're hearing from Doug Pine. He's retired now, but back then he was an attorney handling appeals, civil cases, and criminal cases. He was on a rotation for pro bono work for the Federal Public Defender's Office. He would take cases once in a while for clients who couldn't pay, like George. Doug didn't take the case until George was on his final try at the federal level. You would take a case like that, and you say, well, five courts have reviewed it already. The odds that somebody missed something are, are pretty slim. You know, generally, I think courts and prosecutors and defense attorneys generally get it right. And uh, for it to be missed for that many courts, it's unlikely. So you get the case and you get the trial record and you start reading and you, and you uh, are skeptical just by nature and by your experience. And then things start to fall one thing at a time. You begin to see, well, what? And then you don't believe it until you've uh, gone through the whole thing and then sat back and said, wow. Uh, I think I'm right here and five courts are wrong uh, and they really screwed this up. Remember how the judge referred to all the other evidence in the case when he denied the new trial? Well, that's where Doug found things starting to crack. The only other evidence was the testimony of a forensic analyst who tested samples from George and Lavelle and compared them to a sample collected during the woman's forensic exam. All three were secretors, which means their blood types show up in semen or vaginal secretions. The analyst found that the blood in the sample was consistent with multiple parties, which corroborated the woman's testimony that two men raped her. 
and the analysts found that the sample could not rule out George and Lavelle. Both of them could have been contributors, but the elements that were found could have come from other blood types as well. This was before DNA, uh, so there's no DNA involved in this at all, but it was just blood types. And uh, as I recall, Mr. Lewis had an unusual blood type. Uh, That is true. Yes, George had an unusual blood type. In fact, the forensic analyst testified that only 4% of the population had the exact same type. But the analyst never said that George's blood type was for sure present in that sample. Despite that, when the prosecutor got up there to talk to the jury, she really emphasized that 4% number. She started by pointing out to the jury that blood evidence can't point to one person, but it can exclude people. Then she started going through the numbers. George Lewis is type A. That's 22% of the black population. He has a 1 plus, 1 minus. That's 17 to 18%. Multiply those together and that gets you 4%. She told the jury, so while the evidence does not point to Lewis as definitely the person, it certainly corroborates the victim. The defense attorney didn't object. You know, I think everybody sort of said, oh, okay, 4%. That was, I think, the the number that somehow the prosecutor brought up. And that was the mistake that got stuck in everybody's head. The defense counsel should have screamed to high heaven about this and pointed this out. It should have been discounted, especially because this, this, these kinds of numbers, this percentage stuff, uh, can be so uh, determinative of an outcome. You know, if, if, you're, if you are a juror in this case and you're led to believe that, that Lewis is in a 4% of the population, that only 4% that could have contributed this, then you think there's a really good chance he's the guy. Doug doesn't think the prosecutor intentionally twisted that number. So lawyers are not very good, usually, are, are mystified by math. And so you throw out numbers, and they're not really usually that capable in delving down to see what the true statistical uh, significance of numbers are. Even if this had all been calculated correctly... This type of evidence is usually not allowed because it's called prejudicial instead of probative. It's convincing, but it doesn't prove anything. When George's attorney tried to get him a new trial back in 1988, he actually brought this up, saying he believed the jury interpreted this as a 96% chance George was the guy. The judge said because there was no objection to that evidence at trial, it wasn't enough to grant a new trial. When Doug got George's case, he surmised quickly that every other appeals court had missed the miscalculation. What happened at each point, uh, the same errors were perpetuated. At each point, nobody took the time to dig a little bit deeper and see what was really going on. In Doug's brief, he also really hammered at the appeals court's argument that the victim's recantation at Lavelle's trial might make her seem more trustworthy, not less. He wrote in his brief, that is ridiculous. He pointed out that the woman did not give much of a description to police, except for two black men, until she saw George and Lavelle. She didn't give any description of these guys until she was in a bar uh, about a week later, and these two guys came in, and she said, oh, I think those are the guys who did it. Up to that time, she would never gave any description of them, other than saying they were two black men. Doug knew that the courts are very reluctant to overturn a jury's verdict. But he argued, the jury's verdict here is irrelevant. 
because they were missing key information about the witness recanting, and because they were fed confusing statistics about the likelihood of George being guilty. He wrapped up his brief by saying George's trial was an overall evidentiary and constitutional debacle. And the judges agreed with him, at least to some extent. The federal court overturned the state court's decision and granted George a writ of habeas corpus. The judges said they disagreed with previous rulings and think the victim's recantation at Lavelle Carter's trial would, quote, destroy her credibility in the jury's eyes. The ruling also pointed out that the blood evidence was inconclusive, and the testimony from police officers depended entirely on the victim's description of events. So, these judges reasoned, the entire trial depended almost entirely on the victim's testimony. They wrote, We do not believe a second jury would convict Lewis. With a writ of habeas corpus granted, George had to be released unless the state could start a new trial within a reasonable period of time. Even with such a strongly worded order from the federal courts, Doug says he remembers it took prosecutors about a month to decide not to retry George. Hennepin County attorney Mike Freeman dismissed the charges against him, saying, Recently discovered evidence makes it impossible to prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. He also said the victim did not want to pursue prosecution. They would have very little chance of any success in retrying him. And then, even though there, there might have been, that might have been prosecutorial misconduct under the lack of evidence that they had at that point to have proceeded might have crossed that line. If there's something George's case can teach us about the fight to be exonerated, it's this. Because each appeals court gives the previous one the benefit of the doubt, once you're denied that very first time, it's kind of a snowball effect. You can go through appeal after appeal, and each time, it gets harder in some respect. Because now, you're trying to make a case that every judge before this one got it wrong. Doug said, at some point that snowball turns into an avalanche, covering up everything in its path. George's federal appeal came at a time in the U.S. when it was maybe even harder to win an exoneration than it is now. The courts were pretty tough on crime in the early 90s. Doug says they were not generally overly sympathetic to the convicted. Did you ever work another case like this? No, this was a, this was one of a kind. You don't have more than one of these, I think, in a career. And um, it was uh, especially rewarding given the, the times and, and the rarity of this sort of decision uh, in that time period. After George got out of prison, he visited Doug. George brought him a thank you card. I have a copy of it. It says, thanks, Mr. Pine, for a job well done. We talked for half an hour, and uh, that was it. And I, you know, I can picture he was modest, well-spoken. Uh, struck me as a very nice man. He was not angry. Um, I, he, if he was anything, he was exhausted, I think is what he was. George was in prison almost three years. When he got out, he stayed in Minneapolis. He and his fiancée, Geraldine, stayed together for a while, but eventually their relationship ended. Fritz, George's brother, says he doesn't know if it was directly because of the three years George was in prison. 
she ended up marrying another man. Fritz told me a couple stories like this, things that happened in George's life after his wrongful conviction. Fritz doesn't know if everything is directly connected, he just knows that things slowly went downhill after that. George met a woman named Debbie, and Fritz says they were happy together. They got engaged and even visited his family down in Mississippi. George started working for a recycling plant. And then... Something happened to him up there after that. You know, I don't know if he was still having flashes or flashbacks of something about his prison time. But he was doing good on the job, but don't nobody exactly know what happened to him. They were somewhere up there at a party. He was supposed to be left to go and get some more alcohol or something for the party. And don't know what, he don't really know what happened. And to this day, he haven't never really got himself back straight. He don't know what happened. They found him wandering the streets over there in St. Paul, Minnesota. Didn't know where the automobile was that he was driving or anything. And after that, you know, I guess what you say, it was just history for him because... That was the beginning of George's life with dementia. His family says this happened in the mid-90s, just a few years after his release. He was only in his 30s. I don't know how he developed it, but he started having it. He still know who he is. He know who I is. He know who my sister is. Debbie and George had an apartment together. She cared for George until she couldn't anymore. Her health was slipping, too. She put him in a personal care home, and then she later passed away. In 2012, Fritz and Johnny May drove to Minnesota to come get George and take him home. He would have been in his early 50s by then. Fritz says if they hadn't done it, he would have become a ward of the state. Fritz doesn't think George's prison time caused his dementia, but he thinks it has something to do with it coming on so early in his life. And there is some research that might back this up. Several studies suggest a link between post-traumatic stress and dementia. Doctors who study this say more research is needed to show causation. Here's why Fritz thinks George's traumatic experience with his wrongful conviction is connected to his dementia. All he know now, and there's a reason why that I say that, is that his biggest conversation is, I'm a good boy. I'm a good boy. He can't really just come out with a just a actual conversation until whatever they'll turn him loose for a little while, then he'll start acting like what, what the day is. Uh, it's just like when you hear about somebody being abused. Just about anybody could get to talking to him, and then that's all he'll know to say. I'm a good boy. Like he's just still trying to convince. There you go. There you go. Both Fritz and Johnny May told me one more thing about George's case that they still have questions about. They say when he was released, he was asked to sign an agreement saying he wouldn't sue. Fritz says no one in the family even wanted to sue. But the idea that they put that stipulation in there kind of bothers them. I tried to find the document, but many of the files in the case have been destroyed. I thought it was outside the realm of possibility for a person whose conviction was dismissed to be asked to sign something like that. So I asked Julie Jonas with the Great North Innocence Project. She said yes, the state can do that, and in fact she's seen it in other Innocence Project cases. She hasn't seen it in Minnesota, but she said she would not be surprised if it happened. The Hennepin County attorney, Mike Freeman, declined to speak with me about George's case. 
He was not in office when George was convicted, but he was the county attorney when he was released in 1991. So I was not able to get to the bottom of whether this deal was ever signed. I don't have no paperwork to prove it, but it just word of mouth for me like it was word of mouth given to me. Fritz told me he's glad I'm doing this story. It's not really because he's angry. He said he's glad somebody is trying to get the story straight. He likes that I want to know the truth about what happened to George. Being a born-again Christian and everything, the truth is all I know that can set a person free. All this other stuff, I, you know, I don't, I don't believe in it. There's one other thing that doesn't sit well with Fritz. If it wasn't George and Lavelle who committed the rape, then they never caught the person who did. I guess they got away, you know, just scotch-free, as you say. I reached out to Patrice Eddy, who prosecuted George. She didn't want me to record her, but we talked for close to an hour. She said she wouldn't take back anything she did. She agreed with the judge's decision to deny George a new trial. She doesn't remember all the details, but here's what she's sure of. Patrice says after the woman recanted at Lavelle's trial, she would have asked her, are you still sure about George? She doesn't remember asking this, but she says that absolutely would have been her next step. If the answer had been no, Patrice says she would have worked to dismiss the case against George. But she doesn't believe that the woman having uncertainty about one defendant was reason to dismiss the case against the other. Patrice didn't remember the 4% evidence specifically and said she'd have to take my word for it. In fact, she thought even using that argument with a jury would be pretty weak. Patrice said she came to Hennepin County from the Manhattan DA's office, where the mantra was, do justice. When she got to Minneapolis, she had a deskmate who would ask her every time she came back from court, did you win? She says this was not her mindset, and the focus on winning made her uncomfortable. After three years, she left to become a defense attorney. Patrice told me if George was exonerated, she's happy for him. That may seem contradictory since she maintained his guilt, but I kind of get what she's saying. She trusts the courts to decide. She feels she did the best she could do at the time, and she believes they did the best they could do years later. If George gets exonerated after she gets him convicted, she doesn't feel that's an indication that she did something wrong. Many times as I've worked on this podcast, I've struggled to understand what the prosecutor's responsibility is in these situations. I asked Doug Pine, why didn't the prosecutors stop fighting George's appeals at some point? Shouldn't they have figured out the error with the blood evidence or acknowledged that there wasn't much evidence in general? Here was his answer. If your question is, do I think they had an obligation to, um, to go back and look, I don't think I would, I think in, under the adversary system that we have, that's, that's the job of the defense lawyers. And that's why it's important to have good defense lawyers and good public defender defense lawyers, you know, to go into this stuff in detail. But, and, you know, they're flawed like everybody, and, and also they're busy. They're as busy as hell. And, and that's true of the courts, too. You know, uh, they don't have unlimited amount of time to give to any one case. What Doug is saying makes sense, and that's the way things were done for a long time. The defense attorney defends and the prosecutor prosecutes. But what happens when you flip the system on its head and prosecutors start taking the initiative to beat themselves at their own game? 
What happens when they start investigating their own cases to identify mistakes, find the wrongfully convicted, and set them free? Next time on Record of Wrong. In this case, the truth was delayed, but today justice has been served. Prosecutors do have an obligation to disclose exculpatory information in a post-conviction setting, and they do have an obligation if they've received evidence that maybe an innocent person has been convicted, they've got an obligation to do something about it. Once we know what we should do, we should do it. And we shouldn't have to have a judge ordering us to do it if we know that it's right. Some of these prosecutors belong in a jail cell. We occasionally see that this is more than dumb lawyering. This is more than a culture. This is deliberate, willful, malicious, intentional uh, effort to win at all costs without regard for the very obvious and significant possibility of innocence. And what do you do when you see that? Stay tuned. This is Record of Wrong, a CARE 11 original podcast. Check out recordofwrong.com for more information about the cases we cover. Record of Wrong is reported and produced by me, Emily Havick, with editor Rita Butero. Original music is by Dave Mailing and me. Dave Mailing also did our mixing and mastering. Original artwork by David Malman. Special thanks to Lauren Olson, Janine Vogelar, and other CARE 11 management and staff for their contributions, and to the people who shared their stories with us.